Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. And, you know, I'll dial it in to certain times of year, temperature, elevation, what the plants are doing. And that varies year to year. You know, I'm sure you guys see down by you even. You get to a, a certain cover, a certain week of October, let's say, and you've got really good blackberries. You know, whatever is still hanging on. You go back a few days later and everything's picked clean. Those birds are liable to move off. You know, you might not find another bird in that pocket for the rest of the season. Who knows? Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY. Returning to the show this week is my buddy Joe Hoysinger of Cover Creek Outfitting. Joe, how you doing? I'm good, man. What's going on? How are you? Oh, dude, just living the dream, just trying to keep my head above water as usual. I thought it would be fun, you know, first off, me and you haven't caught up in quite some time, probably been about a year now, but I thought it would be fun this time of year. You know, it's early July while we record this, but for those that don't know that you are not only a trout fishing guide, but you're also a rough grouse hunting guide up in New York. And so I thought it might be fun to kind of get you on and kind of explore the day-to-day -day operations of what an actual upland hunter and wild bird hunting guide kind of does in the off season, trying to figure out covers, trying to train dogs, but also you still have a regular job in taking other people out to catch fish. But before we get into all that, man, catch me up. What's been going on for the past year or so? Like I said, we haven't caught up in quite some time, man. Fill the gap. Catch me up. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been at least a year for sure. Well, I guess coming off the, the spring training camp up at Webfoot. So yeah, it has been over a year then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's been a crazy year between kind of changing our outfitting business name and direction slightly to bringing on extra guides for the fly fishing and wing shooting side of things. It's been crazy. You know, this time of year, our season's in full swing. So between guiding, prepping for fly fishing trips, gear coming and going, trying to fit stuff in with the dog, house projects, you know, it's a little bit of everything. It's craziness. Yeah, there's no way you can get everything done in one day. So I, I have to ask, why did you have to, why did you change the name for those that maybe don't remember you were, I think, formerly Creek and Cackle, right? And now you're Cover Creek Outfitting. Why the name change? So when I first, I guess, long story short, I've been around fly fishing and upland bird hunting bird dogs for over 20 years. I grew up around it. It's pretty much all I ever knew as a kid. I didn't play sports. Um, I used to shoot competitively a little bit, 
but I didn't have basketball practice, football practice, whatever it is. So I grew up trout fishing and pheasant hunting at a, at a local gun club preserve with, uh, with both my grandfathers. And that's where I pulled the name Creek and Cackle originally from. Creek, obviously fishing, Cackle, taking a cue from, from the pheasant hunting world. And I kind of fell away from the, the bird dog side of things for a while, you know, high school, college, all that fun stuff. And then when I got back into it, I went right back to grouse hunting. I didn't even think about anything else. I just said, you know what, this, this is where my heart was. <laughs> That's what I'm going for. And now that we're really doing more of the upland guiding as well, I kind of redirected our outfitting business. And that's where the uh, Cover Creek outfitting comes from. So we're in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. Um, so it's in terms of fly fishing, it's kind of one of the meccas in the country for fly fishing. This area in the Catskills, we're referred to as Trout Town, USA. So it's the heart of it. And then in terms of the grouse and woodcock hunting, it's really what people think of with classic New England grouse hunting. A lot of the forefathers in, uh, you know, up in literature and guys like Gorham Cross, Grandpa Grouse, um, William Harden Foster, those guys, they write about these covers that we hunt right here in New York. So it's really a cool place to be and uh, a lot of tradition, a lot of heritage. And that's what I try to embrace with, with my hunting, my dog training, fishing and guiding folks. Yeah. So you have a little bit of an element. Obviously, you have your backstory that brings you into it, but it's full circle. You appreciate the tradition of it with, like you said, New England grouse hunting. And I know a lot of people may not, when you talk about, you know, maybe grouse destinations, maybe New York isn't one of the first states that they're to throw throw your way, but there are still some covers and haunts within that state in your area that afford somebody a blast in time or kind of time machine back to where you're actually hunting those really tried and true New England covers almost. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you, you and I can relate a lot because I mean, we're talking East Coast grouse, you know, and everybody thinks of grouse hunting, you know, I mean, we've both been to the Midwest, it's Michigan. Yeah, I've hunted uh, the Northern Lower Peninsula of Michigan a little bit. One of our good buddies actually has a, a camp out there. My younger short hair, he's actually from a kennel in Minnesota. So I got him specifically out of a kennel that kind of gears a little bit towards grouse and woodcock hunting. But having hunted the Midwest, it doesn't have the feel of a New England grouse cover. You get out there, you have the aspen cuts and it's beautiful cover. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the thick, the tangly, the stone walls, the overgrown orchards like that. That's the kind of stuff that, that gets me excited. Not that the Midwest doesn't. When you get in the middle of a cover and you just push through a whole bunch of briars, brambles, you know, multi-floor rows, and then you step out through some blackberry and you've got this old stone farm wall and you just look down this gully, you know, down a mountainside, it's pretty awesome. And I think a lot of people, you know, I've had a few people ask like why I go to all the different type of regions or areas that I go to, but hunt the same species, right? It's just, they don't fault me for traveling, but they're like, why are you hunting rough grouse? in the Great Lake states, and then you go up into Maine, and then you chase them down in the southeast. And I've even chased rough grouse in Iowa last year, believe it or not. And for those that, you know, maybe they only stick to one region or one area, and you can't fault them for it if they find success somewhere. But what you just described, every region has its own different flavor, almost. Like the birds act different. The covers look different. And East Coast grouse hunting is different than Great Lake grouse hunting. You know, it's like, I'm going to go up to the Great Lakes area with a certain, not expectation, but image in my head of what I'm actually chasing and doing with my dog versus you come on the East Coast and especially you come down here in the Southeast, 
if you come on the East Coast down South, like you're just hoping for a flush. You're just hoping to hear or see one. So it's not even a numbers game, but each one kind of brings its own challenge and flavor, if you will, to what we like to do. And so it kind of breathes a little bit of variety into what we actually like doing and chasing with these dogs. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I mean, it's really cool to see the dogs adapt to it as well. My dog is two, almost two and a half. When he hunted Michigan, it would have been, we're going to be pushing a year ago. So I'll just call it a year and a half. And coming from the thicker covers of New England and New York state, you, I mean, immediately you see a change in the dog's gait, the way that they're navigating the woods. I mean, it's, it's a lot more open um, forest floor out there, you know? So they, they kind of change their pace and their game a little bit. And uh, it's amazing to watch these dogs adapt. Even yourself, you know, as a hunter, the covers that we hunt here, I might have a certain, obviously you start to know a certain way you like to hunt your covers and things like that or even just the, uh, the terrain, like I get used to, okay. in the Catskills, I'm planning on this type of terrain for this day, based on this weather, this temperature, all that you get out somewhere like the great lake States. And you look at it, you might be on Onyx. You're looking at your cover this. Okay. I'm probably going to start here. You go over there and you're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> you know, I'm not used to this at all. So it forces you to learn something new. You know I mean? It, if anything, it makes you better. Absolutely. And I describe it to everybody as, you know, somebody first knew maybe they're planning their first trip somewhere. It's like, what do I look for? What do I do in this? And and I can help, you know, point them in the right direction, but I'm not a tried and true expert in any of this stuff because I spend so much time kind of getting a little bit of information from the Northeast, then the Midwest, then the Southeast. And I, there's some common threads between all of it, but there are stark differences as you just kind of described. And I tell everybody, like, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist in any one thing. So while I have some tips and tricks or some kind of nods to go in this certain direction or do this, I wouldn't call myself a quote-unquote expert in any regards because some of the people that live within their area, it's like they pick their one thing that they do and they do it really well. And, you know, I can't hold a candle to those guys when it comes to trying to match what they do. But, you know, you just have to get out and explore it because, like you said, when you hunt the same areas, especially you as a guide that, you know, you have to show people some sort of modicum of success on your walks, you're going to hunt it and break it apart a completely different way than if you go on the road to some foreign area and you have to start from scratch and square one, finding a good cover to work with your dog and hopefully not waste any more time than what it is going to take to figure out the area. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story real quick. My very first season guiding fly fishing, I was helping out a couple different outfitters, you know, fly shops. And I got a phone call and this guy was like, Hey, I have a, a group trip. I need an extra guide. Are you free? I said, absolutely. You know, would love to. I think we had a group of, I don't know, six or seven people. And uh, I hop in the car with the other, you know, the outfitter who's kind of promoting the trip and we're headed up the river and we're kind of talking through spots that we might go to. And he got to one spot and I said, oh, you know what? Funny you mentioned that. I've actually never fished that spot on the river. And he said, perfect. That's where we're taking them. And I'm thinking, oh boy, kind of thing. So he, he forced me right from the start. Okay, you're guiding now. You got to be able to look at something and know that you can basically lead your client into some form of success. You know, what that success looks like is different to everyone. That's where guiding can get tricky. You know, so it's pretty fun. It, it keeps you on your toes. And that's one really enjoyable aspect about it. 
That is really interesting because every single person that you probably take out is looking for something completely different. That's probably true in trout as well as grouse. You know, some people might might value or emphasize more so the experience, you know, the romanticism of it. It's just maybe it's not a numbers thing, but they just want like a quality experience. You know, maybe they just want that really big fish or just a good fight and then take it all in. Then you probably get some guys that maybe they're brand new to it and they just want to see numbers. They just either want to catch a lot of fish or shoot a lot of birds. When you're trying to find these areas or figure out certain areas, how much of that comes into play to where you're like, okay, I like the look of this. I like what the makeup of this, the plant diversity, what have you, whatever it is, but you're going to file it away for the right client, if you will, or the right group of people? Like, is that every single outing basis to where you're trying to match a specific type of hunt to a specific type of client? Or is it just kind of you have your pool of spots and that's where we're going and we're going to see how it plays out? Yes, (laughs) a little little bit of both. All of it. (laughs) All of the above. So I'm even in the off season, I'm constantly using Onyx, Google Earth, Thankfully, the region that I'm guiding in, a lot of my grouse covers or fishing spots, river streams are very tight knit. Some of these rivers even run through properties that we grouse hunt. So even if I'm on the river guiding a fishing client, I'm still scouting for our grouse season and vice versa. I'll be in the river guiding somebody fishing and I'll hear a bird start drumming in the background and I'll immediately file that to the back of my head. And when we get back to the truck, I'm dropping a pin on Onyx. I'm always thinking anytime I mark down a spot, I try to put notes in it based on the terrain, um, how far the walk in might be, what kind of plant life I'm seeing, anything that can key me in when the season opens, which could be a couple months down the road. I go back to the memory bank and figure out, okay, something about this made me take the time to to drop a pin in Onyx. What was it? Do I remember enough to bring a dog in there and go hunt it? Or do I need to go back in just on foot, hike around, you know, kind of get my bearings. And then once I've got something that I think is a, a huntable cover, whether it's just for me to hunt or guide and take clients there, then just like you said, now I'm thinking, okay, this is a cover that's ideal for this type of hunter or that type of hunter, maybe even down to the age of a hunter, their physical ability. Can they hike up and downhill for two, three, six, seven miles, whatever it might be? Do we have to find something with a little more two-track or skitter road access, the type of dog? If I know a client's coming in from out of town and they've got a very young dog, I might pick a certain type of cover that we're probably going to find some woodcock in. If they've got an older, bigger running dog, then I'm going to pick a little bit larger cover that we can really take our time, work some edges, dive right up the middle of it and have a good hunt. So I'm always looking at that. I'm looking at um, historically numbers of birds per cover um, per time of year. So I'll dive into even, okay, say I've got cover A, B, and C. I know A is really good for a young dog, but maybe not until November 1st. Cover B, we're liable to get five flushes in the first half hour, but only above a certain elevation. And, you know, I'll I'll dial it into certain times of year, temperature, elevation, 
what the plants are doing. And that varies year to year. You know, I'm sure you guys see down by down by you even. You get to a, a certain cover a certain week of October, let's say, and you've got really good blackberries, you know, whatever is still hanging on. You go back a few days later and everything's picked clean. Those birds are liable to move off. You know, you might not find another bird in that pocket for the rest of the season. Who knows? Especially once you start getting into the time of year where maybe freeze or something can kind of go into the woods. And there's a lot to unpack in what you just broke out for that. Because I'm curious when you said that you're always looking at Onyx, you're always putting pins on the map. But I'm curious when it comes to figuring out a successful spot, do you have a better track record on just finding it on the map and then going to it with boots on the ground? Or do you have better success by just finding it when you happen to be out fishing or another day in the woods? Maybe you hear that drumming or maybe you see a bird flush and then you come back to it later. Does that make sense? Definitely makes sense. I can actually tell you with certainty, I have never once put boots on the ground and stepped into a cover without first scouting via Onyx or Google Earth. Okay. So it's a little bit of both of them. Even if I hear a bird drumming, if I'm hiking a trail and I see a flush, I'll go back, you know, before I go back to the house, gear up, grab a dog, whatever it is, I'm always going to open the map up first and figure out, okay, why was that bird there? What, you know, what in the hell makes it look like a a grouse, woodcock, whatever it was, would want to be in this spot. I've had times where you pop the map open and you're like, oh my gosh, I'd never realized how good this looks. And there's other times you open it up and it looks like total hardwoods. And it's, you know, the off chance you got a bird basically using a travel lane, um, just passing through. So you never really know. And I think that's, I mean, for me with rough grouse, especially that's what keeps me coming back is you just never really know. Yeah. I mean, you can walk out there to a spot to where it's like, all right, I flushed 10 grouse in this spot last year or even last week, and then you go out there the next week or two, and they're completely gone. I mean, it's like from day to day, those woods change based on the conditions, based on the time of year, their habits, all, all that stuff. And so when when you're out there trout fishing, you said that like if you hear a grouse drumming, I was expecting you to say, I immediately pull out my phone and, and drop a pin on the map. But you said once you get back to the truck, I'm wondering, are you trying to keep your spot secret from the trout fishermen in the boat, or are you just that keyed in on the fish in that moment? And you're like, you know what? I'm going to go map scout this later before going out there, and I don't want to give it away to the guy in the boat. No, it's more of a, um, if I'm with a client who's spending their time and money with me to give them an experience and that attention that they deserve, I try to, you know, keep off, you know, phone technology, that kind of thing. I can't tell you the number of times that a day of fishing turns into nothing but bird dog talk. Like if somebody happens to be a bird hunter, then we'll pop out the phone and say, Hey, let's, let's look at that real quick. What's going on here? (laughs) I was just about to ask the overlap. How many fishing clients turn into grouse hunting clients and vice versa? Most, I don't have an exact number for it. If I had to guess 75% of my grouse hunting clients are fishing clients. So it's, it's quite a bit, actually. I know this year right now, I probably have at least 15 of my repeat fishing clients set up for a grouse and woodcock trip this fall. And then we've got a number of newer folks reaching out too. I mean, being in New York, it's where about an eight hour ride from Washington, DC, that area. I actually get a lot of folks that come up from that mid-Atlantic region. 
you know, just trying to get their dogs into wild birds, you know, they're kind of in a weird area. It's like, we're a hair closer than heading out to the great Lakes States for them. But yeah, we get a lot of people from the, the mid Atlantic region. And then a lot of folks from obviously right around here in New York, and then a lot of Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and a lot of folks from uh, Southern Vermont too. Would you say that most of your clients, is there a majority of one way or the other on people that like, as you described, they have their own dogs and they're just trying to get their dogs on birds or do you get more of the clients that just, Hey, you know, this is what I do. I pick a place, I find a guide, I go hunt and I just want to go shoot birds. Is there, there more people trying to like learn and figure it out with their dogs or is it people that this is what they do? They just know that they're going to go out once or twice with a guide each year. Our clients tend to lean more towards the keep hearing about this rough grouse hunting. I keep seeing it. Maybe I've done it a handful of times and they're trying to put the pieces together. They're trying to learn, trying to understand the game. And then probably second from that would be the folks that maybe they're longtime grouse hunters and now live in an area that just doesn't have birds and they want to get a young dog, some wild bird contacts. We're seeing more and more of that. Are they constantly like grilling you like, hey, what what is it about this spot? Why were there birds here versus not there? Are they actually like curious to try and figure it out themselves or are they just kind of along for the ride hoping that their dog stumbles upon birds? I would say more of the latter. People just hoping their dog gets into some wild bird contacts. We get a good number of people that genuinely want to learn. I always ask people up front. I've got a couple questions that I always ask people. Outside of, you know, their expectations, what they're looking to get out of the hunt or the, you know, if it's a single day, multiple days, whatever it is, I want to get to know more about what hunting they're going to do when they get home, because that's going to kind of give me some clues, whether they know it or not, on what kind of covers we should be going to, if there's anything specific that they want to see out of their dog, you know, I'm going to try to set their dog up for success um, as well as them as the hunter. And then kind of from that, I want to figure out them as a hunter. You know, if there's different types of covers that they prefer, have they been grouse hunting for 60 years and just want to take a walk in the woods? Are they brand new to it? And they want to dive into the why, the how, what this plant is, that plant, why was this bird there and not there? When people ask those kind of questions, I nerd out. I mean, that's when I'm a kid in a candy store. I love that stuff. Well, those are the type of people that you know that like they really want to figure it out. And that's why I'm curious coming from a guide perspective, because I can see it going both ways. It's like, like you said, we nerds appreciate other nerds trying to figure stuff out. It's fun. You know, we have a passion for it. We want to share in that passion. But coming from a guide's perspective, if you have somebody trying to figure it out, you know, it's kind of like, well, if they figure it out too much, there goes your client, right? So like there's a little bit of an element. And I know that some clients keep a lot of things close to their chest. I'm kind of wondering how you kind of balance out that conundrum when you're talking to clients. Do you just kind of offer everything to them if they ask? Or do you kind of keep things and secrets a little close to your chest, so to speak? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm a bad business person. <laughs> if somebody asks me the right questions for the right reasons... I'm going to do everything that I can and know how to do to help that person be successful, whether it's with me or going out on their own or going out with buddies. I mean, it's an awesome feeling when you get a picture from a former or current client and they've got a rough grouse in hand or, you know, they shot their first woodcock after, you know, learning a couple little tips and tricks from you or, you know, they went out on their own and caught a fish. I love that stuff. 
And I found the the more that you can help somebody, it, to your point, it sounds like if you help someone too much, you could lose them as a potential client. In a lot of situations, it's kind of the opposite, you know, because you've just became that that trusted resource. You know, I become really good friends with a lot of these people. I was chatting this morning with a, a fishing client of mine. He just got back from a saltwater trip. You know, he was saying he used a bunch of the kind of casting tips and tricks and tried a few of the things I mentioned. He had an awesome trip, you know, so it's you kind of build that friendship and that uh, camaraderie with these guys. So it's it's fun. For sure. I mean, I could keep grilling you out, you know, about how you interact with clients or, or field them. But, you know, I want to kind of get into more or less how to be successful and get tapping into some of that knowledge. But before we move on, you know, you just talked about if they're asking questions and stuff while you're out hunting, you ask questions of clients before you even go out. If somebody's interested in going out with a guide for the first time and they're just in the process of vetting out which guides they want to go with, are there certain questions that really get you amped up and excited when a potential client asks you? Like, is there something that if somebody's listening to this, they want to go on their first guide that you'd be like, hey, this is a great question to ask that guide to weed them out to figure out maybe that's not the right guide or fit for you. Whatever region you're looking to to book a guide or an outfitter in, whatever kind of bird it is, whether it's rough grouse, you're going west and you want to hunt sharp tail or whatever it is. I think number one is think about your own expectations. Is it your first time doing a trip for this species? Is it your 10th time doing a trip for that species? Is it just yourself? Are you going with a group? Do you have dogs? If you do have dogs, be realistic with yourself on their performance. If it's your first time hunting your dog on a certain species, the best thing you can do is have no expectations. It's an exposure trip. The dog is going to try to figure it out. If you're only going out with that guy for one day, it might take your dog the better part of that day to figure out that terrain, that bird. I always suggest to people, if it's a young dog or it's the dog's first time on rough grouse in this case, and you have the time to do multiple days, do multiple days. Um, It's just going to be a better experience for you and your dog. So be realistic with yourself on your dog's performance, their strengths and weaknesses. If you don't have a dog, talk to your guide or outfitter about the dogs that they have, what kind of dog, pointers, flushers. A lot of people tend to ask questions about the range of the dog. When folks ask me about the range of the dog, my kind of counter question to that, not maybe at that moment in conversation, but then we get into a little bit more about the terrain. I find a lot of people ask those questions about the range because in their head, they're thinking about how do I keep up with the dog? you can see where this this is all going to snowball real quick. That leads into conversations about how the dog handles, whether it's my dog or your dog. You know, does the dog handle for you? You try to keep it fairly surface level questions without diving into like, how do you train your dog kind of thing. So talk to your guide or outfitter a little bit about, you know, their dogs, what they expect out of their dogs, um, the type of cover that they're in, whether it's you know, something like the Great Lakes states or you're hunting more of that thicker kind of brambles and briars of New England. Don't be afraid to ask about bird numbers. I know that's always kind of like that weird question some people dance around. We see a lot of folks, especially in the Northeast, they're used to hunting preserves. So they're used to bird after bird after bird. 
I'm very open and honest with people when they ask about bird numbers. I keep a, a pretty intense log on flushes, stats on the different covers, everything. So I try to give people a realistic view of what they can expect in a half day, full day, multi days. And I always give people that look in terms of flushes. So I'm not talking about birds in the bag. I'm not talking about necessarily shot opportunities. Obviously we're putting people in the best position to get a clear shot off. But I always tell people at the end of the day, we're talking about rough grass. (laughs) So I'll give people an open and honest review. If they've got a young dog, I'll ask them, what, what are your goals for this dog during the trip? You know, is it just wild bird exposure? Do you want to try to shoot your dog's first wild bird? You know what? Cause then obviously I'm going to pick spots based on that. Get into some of the other local details with your guide too. You know, if you're coming up with, you know, yourself and two buddies, you want to do two days in the grouse woods, your guide is the local expert. Ask them what are good places to stay? What are good places to eat? Maybe you're coming up with the family and you're just taking a day to get the dog in the woods. Don't be afraid to ask your guide some questions like that outside of just your hunting trip. Use them as a local resource. And then other than that, I guess the questions that get me really excited, a lot of times it's things around young dogs. I see a lot of people that have that young dog, eight, nine month old dog, and they want to get them in the grouse woods. That's when I like, you know, light up like a Christmas tree. I'm I'm thinking this is going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about etiquette? There's a difference between asking questions. Maybe somebody, you know, ask a bunch of questions. They vet it. They, okay, I want to hire Joe as the guide. But maybe they've never been on a hunt in particular, or even just a guided hunt. It may be completely different just on the fact that you have your dog, they have their dog. You know, what about the hunting etiquette as well as just the trip etiquette? You know, showing up on time, you know, what's the go to or advisable advice when it comes to like tipping, stuff like that? Something that like maybe people just aren't aware of when they've never done a guide of any sort, regardless of fishing or hunting. Absolutely. So I'll kind of start from like initial conversations. So say somebody calls me up, we have a conversation there. They're looking to book a hunt with us. Well before your hunt, you're going to know the exact area, rough area that we're going to be hunting in. You know, that way we can plan accommodations, all of that kind of thing. We'll have everybody set up with a deposit. Everything is set. Dates are finalized. Um, We'll know if you have a dog, if you don't, how many people do you have gear? Do you need any gear? Not every guide or outfitter is necessarily going to have a full line of upland gear for folks to use. In our case, we have most of it. Obviously, you know, I don't have a pair of hunting boots for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If folks need, you know, extra, they need a pair of chaps. If they need an an upland vest, a hat, glasses, um, if they need a shotgun. Um, I've got a line of, of double guns that we loan out to people if they need a gun. After that, typically the way that we do things is two weeks before the date of your trip, um, we're going to hop on the phone and have another conversation. You're going to know everything from the meeting point and time for the day of your hunt. If your guide is going to be me or one of our other guides, um, we'll fill you in a little bit more about the types of covers that we're planning to hunt. We'll tell you what the weather is looking like. I always tell people weather changes in a heartbeat. Um, so plan for what we tell you, but also plan for what we don't tell you. So bring, you know, bring extra layers, rain gear, everything like that. 
you'll know what we're having for lunch. All of our hunts, we do a tailgate lunch. You know, we pull up the camp chef and we do a little grilling on the tailgate. So you'll know what the lunch menu is for the day. And then after that, when it comes to day of, kind of like you mentioned, you know, we'll have a, a start or a meetup time, whether we're meeting right on the edge of a property or usually in like the local town, we'll find a, you know, a diner somewhere to meet up and then we'll head for the covers. Once we get up into the cover, I start every hunt with a safety brief, give everybody my expectations, how I like people to carry their gun in the woods, what I ask of them in terms of their dogs. One of my own preferences is that anybody that hunts with us and brings their own dog, I want them to run a GPS collar on their dog, whether they use an e-collar function on it or don't, that's their prerogative. If they don't have a GPS collar, I lend somebody one of mine purely for the tracking purposes. It's a new cover. They're not used to it. The dog's not used to it. That's kind of our just little insurance policy. And then I'll run everybody through, you know, okay, it's me as the guide, whether I'm running a dog or not, where they can expect me to be, where I'd like them to be. I'll give them a quick scenario of, okay, we have a dog on point. Here's how it's going to kind of look. And then I try to over-communicate when we're in the woods or on the water, either one. I'll let people know, expect me to address each hunter by name. I'll give you exact directions, you know, move left, move right, circle around this way, different things like that. And then as the day goes on, I like an open dialogue. I'm typically asking my hunters or anglers questions throughout the day. I like them to ask me questions. I always tell people, If I say anything that doesn't make sense to you, don't nod your head and say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what, what in the hell are you trying to tell me? And uh, I mean, the big thing for me is, you know, we want to get out there and have fun. Um, I I don't take things too seriously. I don't take myself too seriously. So we're, you know, it's all about having fun. You got to joke around. um, You got to talk, talk some smack about your misses, you know, missed birds, missed fish, whatever it is. Um, You got to celebrate when you can big thing for me is you just got to do it safely. I don't want somebody, whether it's a hunter or one of our dogs that we've got hours and hours and hours of time in getting hurt for any reason. Well, and, and all that makes sense, especially the tracking collar. That's a smart feature to wear. Hey, if you're bringing your dog, that's cool. I don't care if you use the e-collar, but you're going to track it because I can see the Google review now like, oh man, this guy took me out. It was horrible cover. I lost my dog, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, that hurts you on the next go around when somebody's, you know, doing the Google research, trying to figure out where the heck to even go. Touch on when the hunt is done, like the expectations have been met, the hunt, you guys have had a good outing. Talk to me about the process of the tipping as well as you have a lot of people. I'm not going to say a lot of people, but where do you stand on people going back to the areas that you guide them at? Because, you know, it is a thing where people will hire a guide, use them, and then just keep going back to the same spots that the guides took them to. You know, that all that stuff is included in etiquette. So where do you stand on stuff like that? So in terms of like tipping and guide gratuity, for me, I tell people, look at your guide as any other service industry. You know, it's so you go you go to a restaurant, you have really good wait staff, somebody takes good care of you, you're going to tip based on that service. Same thing with guiding. If you book a guide whoever it is and they show you a great time, um you had a good experience, maybe you shot a bird, maybe you caught a couple fish, um you learned a few new things, take that into consideration when you're you're thinking about tipping your guide. If they go above and beyond, 
then take care of them, you know, as you feel fit. Um, and again, if you feel that your guide could have done a better job, um, if they did anything wrong, whatever it is, address that throughout the day. Don't wait until the end of the trip and then tell your guide, you know, oh, this was horrible. Talk to your guide throughout the day. If they do something that you feel wasn't safe or is, you know, against what they should be doing ethically, whatever it is, bring that up in the moment so that way they can fix it. That's a good point because you might be able to adjust throughout the hunt. Maybe they're not particularly enjoying that type of walk or cover or dog work, and you can adjust that to appease them. But if they just kind of bottle that up and then it comes time to swipe the card at the end of the day or the tip, and all of a sudden they just hammer you with all the complaints, you're just sitting there like, well, if you told me two and a half hours ago, we could have rectified that. Absolutely. And I mean, even even with that said, at the end of the trip, if as a client, don't feel like you can't address something with your guide. You should always be able to say, you know, hey, this was a great day, but I kind of wish you did this or I wish you didn't do this. Big thing, I tend to even ask my clients, you know, hey, you know, I'd love for you to give me an honest review. Um, if there's anything I can do better next time, please tell me, you know, because that's what keeps me getting better and improving on my own guiding and customer service. But yeah, so think of it in terms of any service industry. If you have a guide or an outfitter and they go above and beyond, they show you a really great day, that everybody's got their own baseline, you know, for service industry tipping. That's kind of what I recommend. What about, you know, real quick, just touch on people, hire a guide, return to the spots. It happens. We know it happens. Is it, I mean, there's really nothing that you can do. It's just like they have the knowledge they're going to go do it, but kind of give me your thoughts or maybe your message to people that aren't into this. Maybe they aren't even aware that it is a, a thing that impacts, you know, that falls under the etiquette umbrella. But what do you think about that type of stuff? Like you said, it's a hard thing to to kind of dance around because everything that we do is public land. So obviously all the, all the birds that we're hunting are wild birds and we guide exclusively on public land. So there's nothing that says Johnny can't come back and, and hunt this cover tomorrow afternoon. A lot of times what we'll do is throughout the day, people inherently ask those questions. Like how does this work? Or they ask about the different types of etiquette. And we'll kind of tell them, typically, if say you get invited on a hunt, it's just like this, like, Nick, if you invited me down on a hunt, you take me to this cover, we get some flushes, have a great day. You know, it's kind of that unspoken thing. I'm not going to turn around and come back here tomorrow without the invite. That's how I operate. And that's usually the story that I'll tell people basically without saying, hey, I took you to this cover you know, don't come back, you know, whatever you're, you're kind of giving them that etiquette without saying it in a weird way, in a sense. I try and put myself in your shoes when I'm asking the question. And it's like the only thing that I can kind of come back to is like the people that are going to do it, they're going to go do it. It comes more of a concern from it's just like, I found that spot. I'm going to go find another spot. It's not the fact that the spots burn, but it's just like, hey, if we just went in there and we just hammered these birds, we had a good walk, we found them give the birds a break, give the birds a rest, go find another spot, go learn how to find the other spot and just don't burn up this one hole. But like you said, it's public land, you know, you can't, you can't keep them out of it, but it's like, I come at it from more of a perspective of the pressure on the birds more than I am. The fact that a guide spot got burned up. And I'll say too, like, so throughout our, our region here, the Catskills and the um, kind of central New York area, I don't want to say it's rare, 
that we don't see other grouse hunters, but it's, it's not common. Um, I, I don't run into many people in the woods at all. I, I would run into more deer hunters than other bird hunters. And the times that you run into other grouse hunters, 90% of the time, it ends up being someone that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. one of the local, uh, rough grouse society chapter members, or, you know, somebody of, of that nature. And to me, then it's kind of like, it's a welcome run in, you know, you swap stories real quick. Your, your clients get a kick out of it too. Cause it's somebody else you get, it can be a good time depending on who you run into. I think last season I maybe ran into two other grouse hunters that I didn't know. And that was it. So the woods are pretty quiet. I've never bumped into anybody in the woods that I had guided and then came back out, at least in those spots. I've never had that happen to me personally. I'm sure in some areas of the country, it does happen. I guess for the area that I'm in, I guess I I just don't overthink it, (laughs) I guess is really what I'm getting at. Let's go into how do you find the spots on the map that you want to go put boots on the ground, especially like you talked about earlier the seasonal type of stuff. So like, let's start there. The seasonal, when you're talking early season, mid season, late season for grouse specifically, what are you looking for when you're actually out there on the boots? Then we can talk about how we maybe spot that onyx or something after that. But let's start with like, when you're actually out there in the woods, you're walking, it's early season. What is Joe looking for? Early season in our region, I'm looking at, so, well, our seasons typically start out warmer and warmer every year. Last season, we kick off October 1st. So last season, we hunted right around the opener and we could have been hunting in shorts and t-shirts. It was hot. So I'm looking for a little bit lower lying areas, hopefully near some sort of water, whether it's a stream bed, a pond, anything like that, some sort of ground seep. And then the areas that we hunt, I really key in on food sources. Year to year, that can vary. Early season, I'm looking at what the deer haven't picked over yet, kind of trying to get an idea of what our soft mass might be for the year. And a big thing is obviously it's rough grouse. We're always talking stem density, always looking at the stem density. And then I'm thinking towards the middle part of the season. I can't tell you the number of times that I'm in a cover we might get a flush and I'll say to myself, man, we had one flush in this cover, but this is a November cover for sure. When you just start seeing little things, cause I'm, I'm always thinking, okay, early season, we've got 90% of our leaves are still up. We've got berries. We've got the food sources. You know, we've got some water running through. This is all good. You might get some flushes and now I'm thinking, okay, what's going to happen in a week? Do we have rain coming? Are we going to have high winds? What are these leaves going to do? And then from there, I'm kind of always trying to come up and basically plan two weeks out in my head. So I guess the best way to kind of look at it from my perspective is October 1st opener. We can start running dogs in the woods on wild birds again on August 15th. We have a quiet season. So I'll usually go through right about middle of August And I'm looking at, okay, where are my early season covers? Maybe I pick A, B, and C again, whatever it is. I'm thinking, okay, last two weeks of August, I'm going to bring a dog into these covers. We're going to do a quick loop, see what the berries are looking like, see what the leaves are looking like. Um, Has anything been maintained in terms of trails? Like did a snowmobile club come through and 
cut in a whole bunch of new trails that weren't here, you know, last season or the season before. And then from there, I'm just trying to get boots on the ground, run through these covers again, even ones that you start to know, like the back of your hand, um, further understand new and older stem density. Every year you're going to find new edges. Every time these cuts go in, something's going to grow up year to year. New York, it grows a little bit slower than out in the Great Lakes states. So we might be hunting covers early season that are 15 years old, you know, and it's going to look very different than something in the Great Lakes states that's 15 years old. Things out there grow a little bit faster. That's a great point. I have that discussion all the time down here to where, you know, something in the Great Lakes, they talk about like five to 10 years as a sweet spot up there in a lot of ways, depending on the type of year or the time of the year. And you come on the East Coast, even down here, you know, you get up in the Smoky Mountains. It's like, well, that five to 10 year cut really ought to be, you know, around maybe even 10 to 15 years down here because you're talking about a different type of plant, but you're also talking about different grow regions, you know, different types of soil, all that stuff. So like people that get honed in on that five to 10 year age, just ask yourself if that's more particular to a certain region and don't just go into the woods and be like, well, this cut is five to 10 years. It's like, yeah, but that might be five years too early for you. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite places to hunt early season, kind of looking at the age too, is old apple orchards. It's You got to think about it. October in the Northeast is apple season. You get these old wild crab apples, these old apple tree varieties that, I mean, I'm talking, they're old 50 60 year old trees tangled gnarly usually real soft soil i don't want to call it a, a bog but you get some real soft a little bit of groundwater coming in um that's where i want to be in october i'm looking for the coolest spot that a bird can hang out so if you told me to draw a picture of my favorite early october grouse cover in new york it's going to be a rock wall with a couple of apple trees all sorts of tangled up probably some blackberry multiflora rose. Cause for some reason we always end up shoulder deep in thorns. That's what that's going to look like. That's the second or third reference you've brought up on multiflora rose. And I'm sitting here down here on my property, like fighting it with, you know, every chemical known to man, just trying to get multifloral. Like it's grouped in with privet and Bradford pears and these other invasives down here. You keep bringing it up in your area. So multifloral rose, you've actually had, some productivity, it sounds like, flushing birds in and around that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, between that, a lot of the food sources I think of in our area. So multiflora rose, hazel brush, which everybody loves hazel brush when it comes to grouse, blackberry, wild raspberry. We get a lot of the wild, wild grape, viburnum, autumn olive is another big one you'll hear people talk about. We get a lot of barberry, another invasive. Another invasive. (laughs) These are all food sources for these birds. You know, they adapt with these invasives. A lot of times they all go hand in hand with these old apple orchards, overgrown farmland. That's the stuff that's kind of reclaiming all of this. So even though they're invasive, these are species that, that we really key in on with the grouse. What about the conifer thickets? Because you just described food and water. That Well, there needs to be shelter too, especially if you have, as you talked about a minute ago, incoming inclement weather, storms or something like those birds are going to key in on something that they can stay warm, dry, what have you. So shelter, 
I tell everybody is like, if I can find the food source and I know that there's water in the area, I'm going to start scanning and looking around for the occasional conifer tree. And if you can find like little pockets of the thickets almost, not the ones that carry on for just a mile, but just the little pockets of it, those are where like more often than not, if I'm just going to stumble upon a bird and it flush out, it's usually within the vicinity of those conifer trees. This is one thing I always tell people where Onyx can can really make or break you. So say you get into a good cover, maybe you don't have time to really walk or hike the whole thing, pull up your Onyx. You might see some really good, okay, you got some beech trees or some aspen, you've got some food source. You'll be able to tell an Onyx real quick if you've got any pockets of conifers. If somebody showed me a, an image on Onyx of whatever kind of, you know, looking cut it is, it's nice aspen cut, maybe it's 12 years old. And just off to the side of it, you see this little, you know, whatever, 100 foot long by 20 foot wide pocket of conifers. Um, oh, yeah. When you're planning these walks, you say you find that 100 foot line of conifer trees or something like that. The setup and how you work that cover with the dog and putting them in success varies greatly. And it helps when you have a target like that, because you can kind of look at the map, you can see the wind direction, the thermals, maybe depending on the time of the day. How much impact do you put in on the elements such as that on how you approach an objective like that to where we just walked sometimes two or three miles to get to this one thing I found on the map, this hundred foot, hundred yard section of conifer trees how are you going to approach that with a client and maybe a, a dog that you're kind of unfamiliar with? This is when knowing your cover and knowing the birds in your area as best you can comes into play. The more that you get to know certain covers, um, you're going to learn your escape cover. Um, you'll know which way those birds typically want to go. Like in our case, 90% of the time, birds are going to try to go uphill. So you try to set yourself up in, in those regards. When you don't know somebody's dog, it's a little bit tougher. You just play to the strengths and weaknesses of the cover. If we're going into a conifer patch or something like this, in my head, I'm just thinking, okay, this is our typical escape cover. This is the weather that we have today. I would expect the birds to do this. And at the end of the day, grouse is going to do what a grouse is going to do. Yeah, there's no telling, man. You're just trying to play the odds the best way you can. So when when you talk about escape cover and put it in terms of how you would describe it to somebody that's never been in the grouse, which you're often dealing with here, when you're trying to describe escape cover, you know, I, I've mentioned that a few times on the podcast and I've gotten a few people asking questions on when we talk about escape cover, are we talking about what they're actually in and them escaping by flushing into that? Or are they flushing out of the cover that you find them and trying to go to another specific type of cover? And that's what we're talking about, escape cover. Does that question make sense? Yeah, for sure. For me, it's they're trying to get out of their loafing cover, whether it's you know a food source or they've fed that morning. Now they're kind of loafing for the day. These birds always have a way to get out fast. They know exactly where they're headed and they know exactly how they want to get there. For me, when I think escape cover, it's that bird that's loafing late morning and typically they're going to use, I don't want to say open cover because none of this is open cover. They're going to use an edge. So whether it's a conifer edge, a hardwood edge, something that they can get off the ground and they want to fly fast and far. 
Some sort of transition zone almost. Exactly. It's a transition edge, something that they can dip and weave in. They're not going to fly. Rarely do they fly a straight line. They're going to try to hook left, hook right. Then they're going to straighten out. You may or may not see them set back down. It just, it depends on your cover. But for me, it's, it's a way to get out of Dodge. And that's the way I describe it as escape cover. The way I look at it is it is the cover or the thicket, whatever it is, that they are trying to fly into to escape, not the cover that you actually find them into. So, But oftentimes, back to the conifers, the conifer stuff can be that escape cover. So it, it can kind of cause confusion when you're talking to people like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to find the bird in that little conifer thicket, so to speak. And then if they're flushing out of it, people are like, well, I thought this was the escape cover. Then we're just kind of getting into names and nomenclatures and all that stuff. But it's important when, you know, you're talking about an audio podcast trying to help people figure out how to do this stuff for it to make sense to them. It's funny, whether it's a hunting or fishing trip, every everybody's going to ask a question at some point in the trip that starts the series of it depends. There's going to be that question where I just kind of laugh and I say, well, it depends, and everything else today will also depend. It's on whatever it is. Everything is contextual. Everything, you know, context is king. And that's why it's hard to talk about this stuff. Everybody's like, well, what do I look for? I'm like, well, it depends. What, where are we talking? What time of year? You know, what's the weather been like? It, it's a full loaded question. So, you know, when people reach out, it's like, look, there's a million different ways we can go about this conversation. That's why it's easier to just talk in generalities, especially when we're talking early, mid, and late season. So when you go back to the seasonal, what you're looking for when you're guiding a client, early season, you're looking for the berries, you're looking for that low end, maybe some shade, you know, just think kind of boggy, shaded, cool area, running water. But then you said that you're going to get into an area and you're like, man, this is a November hunt. What is that transition? What are you looking for in November, December time frame before winter really sets in and kicks in? Yeah. So that November to me in, in New York is kind of like grouse month. You know, typically after Halloween, we've got more leaves down. Um, if not, probably not all of them, but we've got 50% leaves are down for sure. Then I'm starting to think more of that brushy kind of food source. I start paying a little more attention to the hazel brush, things like that. Again, I'm thinking ahead. I'm like, okay, what trees are starting to produce catkins? What are the buds going to be looking like this year? There might still be some berries left. And if you find a good source of berries come November, something that hasn't been picked clean, keep that in your back pocket because the birds know about it too. <laughs> They're going to go back to it. But then as we push through November, more and more leaves are falling down. So now I'm starting to think more, okay, how's the soft mass? Are birds possibly feeding on some of these nuts? Looking more of that hazel brush, any sort of ferns. We have a lot of birds in our area like that greenery. They just eat the salad. We call it, I'm sure everybody calls it that. Now I'm starting to look more at uh, elevation as well. So as we start to get cooler, temperatures cool off. We're kind of getting a little bit closer into our late season. We're open until the end of February, but to me, December kind of starts our later season. Now I'm thinking, okay, elevation. I'm thinking south-facing slopes, looking for sunny spots where birds are going to move to. Where is frost going to disappear the fastest? Where is snow going to disappear the fastest? Late season, we get a lot of birds, obviously on catkins, but a lot of birds feeding on that greenery. Any of those ferns that stay green through winter, that's where I'm pushing towards. Water that's not frozen, any sort of little ground seeps, 
anything that a bird can take advantage of, that's kind of what I'll key in on. When it comes to water, you know, there's a difference between ground seeps, as you call it, puddles, and even moving water, maybe a a slow-moving creek or something. If you had to pick one as a preference, is there one that stands out in your head more so than others? Because I kind of have my anecdotal theories on this as well, so I'm just kind of curious what you think in terms of that. It depends. (laughs) So... You should have saw that coming. If I had to pick one out of the three, if if you put a couple maps in front of me and said, where are we hunting today? I'm going to most likely pick the cover that's got a small, like kind of slow moving little stream, you know, real like narrow. If it's like a five foot wide max kind of stream, real brushy cover, you put that near a rock wall and an old apple orchard and I'm in heaven. And that's kind of my sentiment, too, is just like you don't want like a rushing river or anything, but just something with just enough flow. I was hunting with an old timer and he kind of made the theory that he thinks that the birds just like the sound of it. You know, it helps cover up their sound and then also like covers up their scent when you're talking about thermals and pushing scent down the. I don't know if they're really thinking about this type of stuff or maybe just, you know, survival of the fittest. It just kind of naturally plays out through the genetic lines and, and what gets passed on and what doesn't. But this is the type of stuff that I really like to nerd out on and figure out because, you know, to me, I think that maybe just the moving water is it's fresher, it's cooler. And then, you know, very oftentimes you have a bunch of rock and grit that they can pick to where maybe they don't have to go to the road, the gravel road out there that everybody sees the birds on, they can kind of stay in closer to wherever they are if they have that grit within reach as well. And I think that's like, kind of like you just said, so that older fella has his theory, you know, birds like, like the sound, this and that, that to me is one of the cool, like it's the romantic part of grouse hunting. A lot of other like subcultures of the upland space don't necessarily have, you know, these little elements that we kind of, you talk about that and that's a story right there. You know, it's little spots that you go back to because of that reason. As soon as we started talking about streams, I thought of it. I've got a, uh, a really small pocket cover that we call the saloon. We call it the saloon because it's at most, it's a five minute cover. And it's one of those like end of the day, you know, I'm passing by. Yeah, we got to pop in. It takes five minutes. And if it happens, it happens quick, you know? So it's like an old, old Western saloon. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's pretty much the picture that we just painted. Actually, it's about a, I don't know, three to five foot wide stream, some real sharp turns in it. And it's lined with old apple trees, some old brushy stuff. That's kind of like no man's land. And then a couple of deadfalls. And then the backside of the stream is basically a mountainside. It's just straight up hardwoods and conifer escape cover. So these birds will come down and feed and then they'll escape right up the hillside. So it's got a little bit of everything that a grouse would be looking for. Stream beds like that, get a flight of woodcock in. I love just literally walking down a stream bed. Has been some of the best days that we've ever had on woodcock. No, I, I believe it. What's your observations on how much in your area the grouse depend on like an acorn mass? Because I know down here, especially in the southeast, when we don't really have the variety or successional forest that we maybe once had decades ago, it seems like the grouse and what little you know bit of unicorns we have in our area really ebb and flow with the type of acorn production within the area. Because once you kind of get out of the berry season, 
grape season, you know, greenbrier, berries, whatever, and you start getting into that later season, there's not a lot of green on the ground, at least in the areas that I hunt down here. To your point, when I see green, I'm going straight there because there's not that many resources out there. But I've also known that anytime I've actually flushed a unicorn down here, it's usually within the vicinity of acorn somewhere on the ground there. I find the same thing. I mean, if we're coming into a season that looks like it's going to be a good acorn and soft mast year, I'll definitely, I, I don't want to say key in on it, but as I'm hunting a cover, when we get to those hardwood edges, that early season, you might just veer away from and get back into the heart of the cover. I'll spend a little more time working that edge. You know, I'll take my time and go right up that hardwood edge. Um, there's times I'll even dip into the hardwoods a little bit. If I'm walking an edge and I look over and I see a, an old rock wall or some deadfalls, you know, somewhere that a bird could hunker down, we'll do a little turn off into that. We've had some success that way as well. This will be the last one as we kind of start wrapping this up. But have you noticed in terms of when you talk about elevation, how much are you looking into the actual slope? Like, are you hunting? Are, are you side scaling? Are you actually working the slope transitions? Or are you trying to find like a bench or saddle somewhere where it kind of levels out, whether it's on the higher elevation or lower elevation side? We might do a little bit of a, you know, an uphill climb to get to a certain spot. And then we'll get up there. And it's at that point, we'll look for spots that kind of level off. You'll have that bit of a bench, especially come wintertime. You get up above, I don't know, in my area, I'm going to say above 2,200 feet. A lot of times, January, February, if we're not snowed out, I'm looking for covers that are 2,400 feet, somewhere in there. And then you give me a little bench or saddle at that elevation on a south-facing slope. Some of that snow melt, you get some greenery, I'm, I'm putting my money on that spot. When you're working the slope and the elevation change, do you change how you work that area based on if you have to go up or down based on thermals, you know, the time of the day, you know, when you're kind of, when it's in the morning, the thermals are usually, you know, every area is different. Context is king here, but generally speaking, the thermals are going to be lifting up as you can. So like I try and work downhill in the morning and then conversely in the evening, I'm trying to work uphill as those thermals kind of fall. And again, context is king. That's going to change based on your temperature, sun, weather, humidity, all that stuff. But generally speaking, do you give any thought to that at all? Not as much as some people do. Certain covers, I will, you know, I'll know based on the access point that we're taking or, you know, wherever we know we can get into a cover and we can make that loop and hunt it up or downhill based on time of day. Others, you know, we kind of have, this is our option. We kind of take the hand that's dealt. I definitely consider it. I don't want to say that I disregard it, but I also don't intentionally go up or downhill to hunt the thermals, if that makes sense. You're probably going to pick out or work the cover more so than the thermals. You know, it's just like, I want to go work that thicket. It's not going to change how you actually approach that thicket, so to speak, based on the time of day or thermals. But it's just one element that if given a choice, that might come into play for you. Absolutely. If we have a way to access certain areas to take advantage of thermals, we will. 
same with the wind. I mean, with the grouse woods, I don't put a ton of stock into the wind because we're in thick cover. You know, the, the wind's going to do what the wind's going to do, frankly. So I'm more of hunting the cover and its objectives first and foremost. Then if we can, I'll take a look at thermals, wind, other things like that. That is a good point on the wind. And that's more or less, you know, I got a couple of buddies that kind of rib me a little bit for speaking on the thermals as much as I, I kind of have in the past. But to your point, I don't put much stock in the wind when we're in the rough grouse woods because of the thick cover, the trees, maybe you're on a different side of the slope, especially when we're talking mountain hunting. I find that I can have a little bit more consistency relying or trying to uh, play the thermals with my dogs. They're at least kind of working in that direction. Then I have success finding wind. And uh, unfortunately, just where we live, there's not enough birds for me to like really kind of gauge how important it is to me, like success or unsuccess. But it's something that every time I'm going out, I'm kind of putting more stock in that thought process more so than the wind. And I think in my head, I'm thinking about birds running more and more too. By you guys, we see a lot of grouse, even woodcock. I mean, we see woodcock are running like track stars anymore. I'm always kind of thinking that too, you know, as we're going through these covers, the wind can help. We see more more and more dogs are, you know, just taking advantage of that ground scent, working a running bird and it gets, it can get tough in the grouse woods for sure. You know, I mean, it's one place I'll look at the wind. If we know we've got a bird running, if we can circle wide and get the wind in our favor, I will. Well, me and you could be doing this type of conversation for probably two or three more hours. Especially when you start getting into theory and what we suspect and might think like, you know, it, all that stuff that's to, you know, earlier circling back to like really what kind of captures my attention and focus and imagination. But I think that's one thing that probably is the most fun about grouse hunting too, though. It's a lot of that skepticism that, you know, let's try this. And I think that's one of the most fun things for me, you know, is you just, let's try it. <laughs> you know, you got to try it and see. Well, and at the end of the day, the key thing that you just said there is see, and you're not going to see it by sitting on your couch. Like you, you have to go out, you have to spend the time in the woods, putting the miles on and hunt the different types of birds in different types of regions. You know, if you really want to nerd out on rough grouse, rough grouse lives in a lot more areas than just one specific region. And if you really kind of develop these theories, which you just described, if you're out chasing these rough grouse, they there's something about them that kind of lights up people's imagination. And you're going to come up with your own crazy theories or anecdotal just like, you know, I never hunt areas below 1,900 feet in elevation. Like, you know, there's something magical about the 2,000-foot elevation map here in the southeast. People think rough grouse are going to look at the map and be like, nope, I'm not going there. It's below 2,000 feet. And it's like, well, okay. It's getting out there and testing your theories, figuring out the patterns and stuff like that, because I've created my own patterns to where five years ago, I'd be like, I'm only going to do X, Y, and Z. And then two years later, I'm like, I don't care at all about that. Like it was proven to not even matter, but it's part of the fun of figuring it out. But you have to get off your couch, go outside and develop that database, so to speak. Oh yeah. And that's one of the biggest things I would say to somebody who maybe they're brand new to rough grouse hunting, or they've done it a couple times is don't overthink it, you know, because it very much is a bird that's going to be where it is. <laughs> you know, they're going to be in one spot today, a different spot tomorrow, and maybe back to that first spot in two weeks. 
just get out there. You know, if it, you learn a little bit about the the type of cover in your area, whether you have a dog or not, um, get out there and bust some brush. You know, you'll get a bird in the air and uh, it'll keep you coming back. Too easy, man. Well, we didn't even touch on the uh, off-season dog work that's required by a guide or anything like that and kind of catching that up. That's a whole nother episode, but we'll we'll have to explore that, man. I, I know that there's going to be at some point where me and you kind of link up and can actually go for a walk. Maybe maybe you come down here in the south and, and we can kind of chase the unicorns down here. I know that uh, you got a couple other buddies, you know, Scott, you and him kind of swap uh, flies and stuff oh, throughout yeah, the off-season. Yeah, yeah you'll, you'll have to get down here and go fishing and, and unicorn hunting with us. Sounds good to me, man. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, listeners, stay tuned for the outro. Joe, I appreciate checking in with you again, and uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with my buddy, Joe. This was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, as well as Upland Gun Company. I thought it'd be kind of fun for some listeners that maybe they're first starting out or they don't have the time or means to necessarily do the education or research to do a a DIY trip. And so maybe something like a guided hunt or option would be appealing to them. And so, you know, as Joe kind of talked about in this episode, there's a couple key questions or key components that you might want to look for when kind of vetting out a guide that you want to go spend your hard-earned money and time with. So hopefully you kind of got some value out of that or learned something or got a tip that maybe you weren't aware of prior to listening. But I was just excited to talk to Joe about hunting. It's that special time of year that we look forward to from the culmination of the previous season. That It's the time that, you know, we thought would never get here, or at least not fast enough. And then it, it arrives and you realize just how unprepared you are in a lot of ways. And, and you're kind of fighting the clock because I'm just a couple weeks away from hitting the road and doing my Western early season swing. And and it's going to be really interesting on my part. I'm doing a few things that I haven't done before. I'm going to start out in Colorado doing blue grouse and ptarmigan with some buddies and then looking like we're going to do a little swing through Idaho and hunt a few different species out there. So two places I've never been with a few different species that I've never hunted with a number of buddies that I've never hunted with. So it'll be uh, really interesting to kick off the season this way. And and I have a bunch of other trips lined up throughout the season. You know, I'm going to be spending a lot of time up in the Northwoods come October. I can't wait for that. But it's just that time of year that why we do this throughout the year is here. I train hunting dogs to go hunt. There's a million different things you can do with these dogs that kind of brings its own special element to it one way or another. And and I enjoy training for what it is. But if it weren't for hunting, I would not be at least as driven or passionate about it as I am because this is what I live for. I love seeing dogs put the lessons and experience that you hopefully kind of put them through in the off season actually putting it to work on actual wild birds through the hunting season. To me, that's uh, that's the biggest payoff that I can ask for. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it so much so that me and Nick Larson over at the Bird Shop Podcast have come together. We are going to do kind of a joint Patreon Zoom room kicking off the season to where we just get together with uh, both 
Patreon patrons of, of both shows to where we're talking, you know, anything from birds, the dogs, the shotguns, everything. You know, if you have any questions or or stories, you know, by all means, come check it out. You can uh, sign up over at patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself, and that'll get you access in the, in the link to join us. It's going to be on August 29th at 7 p.m. Central Time. I'm excited to do this. We haven't done this before, so it sounds like it could be a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully you guys get something out of it. But I'm not going to keep you guys too much longer. This is kind of a quicker outro. But by all means, if you have any interest in signing up for Patreon, please do so. The voluntary contributions from from everybody within the Patreon community goes a long way. The show would not be here without it, and it truly means a lot. So with that being said, I'm going to wrap this up. Again, everybody, thanks for listening and hitting download and play. It truly means the world to me. And we'll be back here pretty soon with another episode. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.